by all the glories of the day and the cool evening's benison, by that last sunset touch that lay upon the hills when day was done, by beauty lavishly outpoured and blessings carelessly received, by all the days that I have lived, make me a soldier, Lord. By all of man's hopes and fears and all the wonders poets sing, the laughter of unclouded years and every sad and lovely thing, by the romantic ages stored with high endeavor that was his, by all mad catastrophes, make me a man, O Lord. I, that on my unfamiliar hill saw with uncomprehending eyes a hundred of thy sunsets spill their fresh and sanguine sacrifice. Ere the sun swings his noonday sword, must say goodbye to all of this, by all delights that I shall miss. Help me to die, O Lord. Before Action Lieutenant Noel Hodgson, 8th Battalion, Devonshire Regiment, killed in action, Mametz, the Psalm, 1st July, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 7, Psalm, the 1st of July, 1916, Fay to Free Corps. That intro you just heard is from the 1st of July, 2016, and a remembrance project called We Are Here that took place all across Great Britain. This project was put together by British artist Jeremy Deller, and it featured groups of men in World War I uniforms walking simply and silently through the cities of the UK. These men just passed through train stations, malls, and the like, like ghosts, saying nothing, only handing out a white card when asked by passersby. These cards contain the name of a soldier killed on the 1st of July, 1916, and each man represented a soldier lost on that day. If you call it up on YouTube or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on Facebook, it cannot but bring chills. It was a really powerful way to commemorate these men. Okay, so a few quick uh, administrative notes. I am still riding high on the interview with Professor Philpot, just in case you guys were wondering. That was just wicked cool. Um, our second note is related to the interview as well. Uh, listener Bob pointed out that during my conversation with Professor Philpot, I mentioned... U.S. Civil War General Sherman in comparison to General Haig's being a fighter who took it to the Germans. I mentioned that U.S. President Lincoln liked Sherman because he fights. Right. So I should have said Grant, as in U.S. General Ulysses S. Grant, whom I really originally meant to say. But that's what happens when I'm not on a very, very tight script. Thank you for that, Bob, and my apologies for the error. And then to a request now. So, folks, we are all podcast warriors when we listen to these episodes, for we are fighting against the darkness and are expanding our territories of bright knowledge. Stay with me. But we need to strengthen our defenses. 
whether you see yourself as a front camper, a poilu, or a tommy, you need to dig deep trenches. And you need to put out coils and coils of wire out front. How do you do that? With iTunes reviews. For real. No doubt about it. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please take a moment to rate or review it on iTunes. You can do this right through your smartphone. Search for the podcast on the iTunes podcast app. Click through to the description and then in the reviews section, tap the write a review link. A review would be awesome, but if time is short, you can simply leave a starred rating, however many stars you feel this podcast warrants. This will make the iTunes algorithms go all a flutter and they'll rate us higher and make us easier to find, leading to us getting more recognition and making the battles of the Great War better known events. Thanks so much in advance. Okay, to our narrative. We're going to be going long on this and the next episode, I'm fairly certain. On the seventh day, the guns did not rest. In fact, they did the very opposite. At 6.25 on the morning of the 1st of July, 1916, the weather remained misty as the night began to give way to morning. Nevertheless, at that precise moment in the Allied bombardment of the German Army's second lines on the Somme, the shells doubled in intensity. Every one of the 3,000 British and French guns were now being frantically worked by their exhausted crews. They put out as much steel and iron as quickly as they could, from Fay, well south of the River Somme, and on north to the salient where Gomcor village overlooked the British Third Army's trenches, every known and suspected German position was raked yet again, over and over, by intense artillery fire. The roar was impossibly loud. The impacts of so many rounds all hitting and bursting at once, what the Germans termed Trommelfeuer made the ground rumble, rock, and heave like the Somme battlefield was an ocean under storm. In the British and French trenches, conversation, let alone that silly nonsense called sleep, was impossible. Shouting was the only way to get any sort of verbal message across. And by shouting, it was at the top of your lungs type shouting. The conversation wasn't too high on the list of priorities as men nervously checked and rechecked their weapons, anxious for something to do, and some probably desperate to not think about what was coming. Orders and encouragement were given as best they could with the roaring barrage, and in the British trenches the SRD, service rum diluted, but also known as soon runs dry and seldom reaches destination was doled out until it was Napu, Tommy East for gone. Despite a couple of rounds of shots going around, no one went over the top loaded that day. With the stress of the impending attack, the alcohol may have given some lightweights a warm glow, but that was about it. 7.30 a.m. would be the hour, and it was when the day of days would truly begin. As the minutes wound down toward that fateful time, the men on the British side of no man's land made sure that everything was in order as much as it could be. Weapon, web gear, a bandolier of SAA, or small arms ammunition, two grenades each, protective mask, ground sheet, canteen, iron rations, four empty sandbags to help with position consolidation on the other side, shovels, Two men carried shovels for every one who carried a pick. And for some distinctly poor bastards, barbed wire, all packed and ready to go once the time came. The French, to their south, weren't so heavily weighed down. The time came to 7.20 a.m. 
and only those across from it would have heard the enormous Hawthorne Ridge mine bursting out of the earth at Beaumont Amel, creating a groundswell stories high. Two minutes later, from the front lines, the trench mortar teams began lobbing round after round at the German forward positions, adding to the maelstrom. The men of General Rawlinson's 4th Army knew that their world was watching them. One trench mortar battery commander noted, We're within a few minutes of what is going to be the beginning of the end of German culture. Across from Serre, the men of 94th Brigade of the 31st Division heard from their brigadier, Remember that the British Empire will anxiously watch your every move. Keep your heads, do your duty, and you will utterly defeat the enemy. The morning mist was clearing. It would be a beautiful summer's day. 7.28 a.m. The remaining British mines were blown from Beaumont-Amel to La Boiselle to Fricourt and Mametz. The earth lurched upwards as thousands upon thousands of pounds of ammonel detonated and blew the ground and its German inhabitants and occupants skyward. 7.30 a.m. Suddenly, quiet. After one week, the Allied guns on the 16-mile front from Gomcourt to Maricourt stopped briefly as they furiously readjusted to start pounding the German supporting lines. And here it was. In the British and French trenches, the whistles blew. 55,000 men launched themselves into action. On the BEF 4th Army front alone, 73 infantry battalions rose up and out of their trenches and headed towards their fates. At Maricourt, French poilus of the 20th Iron Corps and Tommies of the 13th Corps bounded up their ladders and over the trench parapets into no man's land, where the French Army's 39th D.I., and the British 30th Division boundaries met the commanding colonels of the neighboring battalions, one French and the other British, symbolically held hands as they rushed across no man's land. The Battle of the Somme had begun. Our story really starts here at the junction of the British and French armies at Maricourt, but I want to bring us to the very southern end of the Somme attack front and work our way north for the sake of order. To the south of the River Somme, the French kept the artillery going for another two hours. This was to keep the Germans from enfilading the attacks that launched to the north with supporting fire, as well as to keep any units from being shifted north for counterattacks. As the French 6th Army's guns kept pounding the German lines from Frise to Fay at the southern edge of the attack zone, French planes flew low to observe the bombardment. They also swooped down and fired at any troops who might have exposed themselves. In addition to the planes, the French also had 18 observation balloons that floated with impunity, its observers sending down signals for the artillery to adjust as needed. In the area of Fay Village, the pilots and balloon observers were directing devastating fire on the German Army's 11th Division. Punishing artillery fire was also directed at the German Army's guns. The French had become really adept at counter-battery work, and on the 1st of July, it would show. After attempting to fire shells back at the French, the 2nd Battery of the German Field Artillery Regiment 6, reported being deluged with 2,000 shells. As zero hour approached for the poilus of the 61st DI and the 3rd and 2nd DCIs, French gunners put gas and HE, high explosive, shells in their tubes and sent them out. The gas, being denser than air, would hug the ground and sink down into any remaining dugouts. The HE shells would work to penetrate or cave in any of those remaining dugouts. Inside the dark 
and rank smelling dugouts that were still functional after a solid week and eternity of being rocked ceaselessly like a ship in a storm with little to no food or water. Now the crude protective masks had to be slammed quickly against oily and unshaven faces. German soldiers' worlds were further reduced from that of their dugouts to only what they could see through the goggles built into their masks. Terribly accurate drum fire, being unable to eat, sleep, or move toward fresh air, with wounded and dead stacking up outside and down below, with airplanes now flying low enough that falling shells were a hazard to them and strafing the remains of trenches, with gas coming down the dugout steps like death's own mist. This was truly hell on earth. 9.30 a.m. now. Showtime. At Fay, three French mines under the village were blown just as the artillery stopped, lifted, and began pounding the German second line. What was left of Fay now exploded up into the heavens of this lovely summer's day. Down below, whatever German dugouts remained caved in, either mercifully killing their worn occupants immediately or otherwise entombing them alive. With the explosions of the mines, the poilus of the 61st Division d'Infanterie scrambled out of their trenches and put their training to work, rushing across the shell-torn no-man's land towards the dust and smoke where the German lines should be, squads and platoons covering as other squads and platoons ran forward, the middle-aged men of the 61st were on top of the remaining Bosch of Grenadier Regiment 10 before they could react. Frenchmen of the 61st, having waited since 1914 for this moment, now began to hand out the ass whoopings for which they'd waited so long. Any Germans clear-headed enough to put up a fight were shot down as poilus flooded around them. The German trenches at Fay, leveled and made up mostly of smoking shell holes, were seized so quickly, surviving unit commanders just to the rear had no time to react. From Fay, the lines of the German 11th Division began to disintegrate. This disintegration spread north to the 121st Division, the unit between the 11th Division and the Somme. At the same time as the Poilus of the 61st DI rushed across the crater fields, the Senegalese and other North African tirailleurs of the 3rd and 2nd Division Coloniale d'Infanterie did the same. Assault troops swept through the frontline trenches, overwhelming any Germans who tried to shoot back. Behind them came the Netouilleurs, the cleaners who ruthlessly eliminated any Germans who didn't already have their hands up. The Kutkut knives came out, and things got ugly really fast. French 6th Army Commander General Fayol would later remark, the Senegalese kill everything. Fifteen minutes after the 3rd and 2nd DCIs went over the top, almost the whole of the German front line was in French hands. The artillery really had blasted away almost all of the enemy this time. French guns were already sweeping the second and third trench lines, such as they were, and French soldiers continued forward. Retreating Germans could do nothing for their dead and wounded, who were left lying where they fell. Nevertheless, some Germans rallied and tried to fight back with whatever they had left available to them. But with the front line collapsing before their eyes, German commanders revealed that they were already in desperate straits south of the Somme. At Fay, Fusilier Regiment 38 was told to rush forward to plug the gaping hole there. At Frise, on the southern bank of the Somme, some of the barbed wire remained uncut despite the bombardment, and the remaining men of the German garrison there began hammering at the oncoming groups of Horizon Blue with their rifles and machine guns. The Frenchmen went to ground and sent word back of the holdup. The second DIC commander calmly and professionally reoriented his artillery assets on freeze. The remains of the village was then swiftly leveled and plowed with a violent hurricane of shellfire. By 11 a.m., 
the brick heaps that used to be Fries were in French hands. A two and a half kilometer wide hole in the German army's front line was ripped open by 1230. French troops were already maneuvering on the next German lines. Dompierre village fell. Hundreds of Germans were running towards French lines with their hands up. Within hours, 2,000 German soldiers had been captured. So long as they survived the initial assault and made it to French lines, these Germans found that they were treated fairly well by the Poilus. The French looked at these worn and haggard Germans as having suffered what they had suffered through as well and held no lasting grudge past combat. This is one of those anachronisms of World War I that fascinate me that at one moment these men could savagely kill each other yet a few minutes later would say hey Bosch or hey friends if the shoe were on the other foot relax you've been in this crap as much as I have you'll be treated decently French commanders on the ground sensed their enemies disarray and continued to push forward the Germans rushed any and every available man forward in desperately formed groups to stop them, and they did have some success. In this way, the French slammed up against the strong defense of Herbecourt village and were stopped. At Assevillers, the Senegalese took the village by 4 p.m., only to have it ripped away in a brutal hand-to-hand -hand fight led by a wounded German lieutenant. Fayal ordered his men to consolidate where they were until the artillery could be moved forward. But there was no mistaking it. South of the Somme, the Poilus and Tirailleurs had swept the German enemy away before them and had pushed forward anywhere from one and a half to two kilometers on July 1st. Casualties stood at 1,500. For World War I, that made it a very, very good day. So let's cross the Somme now and go back in time to 7.30 a.m. at Maricor when French troops of the 20th Iron Corps went over the top with the Tommies of General Congreve's 13th Corps. At that fateful moment, the guns fell silent as all along the front the gunners of the British 4th Army and the French 6th Army worked to relay their guns on the German supporting positions. The attackers wasted no time. From the trenches of the 11th and 39th DIs, the Poilus shouted, Vive la France, as they swarmed out of the ground and swept forward. Go, it's the end of the war, said General Villemot, the commander of the 11th Division d'Infanterie. At that moment, it certainly felt like that. At the border of the two armies, French Commandant Le Petit, commander of the 153rd Regiment d'Infanterie, saw the commander of the 17th Battalion, the King's Liverpool Regiment, a.k.a. the Liverpool Pals, advancing with his men. Le Petit caught Colonel Fairfax's attention and offered his arm. Fairfax came over and crooked his arm in Le Petit's, and the two ran across the weedy and artillery-plowed no-man's-land arm-in-arm. The image may look a little silly, but the symbolism of the act was incredibly powerful. The Allies were finally attacking together, showing to the enemy that they were now truly common in purpose and tactic. The Poilus of General Balfourier's Iron Corps poured into the devastated German front line. The artillery had done its work really well here as it was still doing to the south of the Somme. German resistance was weak. In 20 minutes, the front line was in French hands. Across from the 39th DI, the Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment 6 didn't stand a chance. Having belonged to the Bavarian 10th Infantry Division, which had been broken up and plugged in all along the Somme front as reinforcements, Reserve Infantry Regiment 6 had just taken over this sector of the line hours before, and they had done it under bombardment. In short order, the remnants of the regiment were pulling out. Others had been captured when the French suddenly overran them. Bois why, or why would, and one of the day's first objectives 
was captured with hardly a pause. A pause did come at the riverside village of Gerlu, where Bavarian Infantry Regiment 63 made a stand. But just as at Fries across the river a few hours later, artillery was called in on the village and it was taken down. There was little German response in the way of counter-battery fire. French gunners and observation pilots had seen to it that German artillery was silenced. By mid-morning, the 20th Corps had taken all of its objectives for the day, as well as around 2,500 shell-shocked and stunned German soldiers. The 20th Corps pushed ahead about one kilometer. To the Frenchmen's left, the British 30th Division, and to its left, the 18th Division, both of the 13th Corps, launched themselves at their objectives. Into the lifting morning mist, the men of the United Kingdom headed forward toward the enemy. For the 30th Division, the objective was to capture Montauban, sometimes called Montibon, by British troops. Having put the men of the Liverpool and Manchester Pals into no man's land during the last few minutes of the week-long barrage, these men were ahead of the game when 7.30 came. Albert Andrews was one of those men. In his memoir titled, Orders Are Orders, he wrote of moving forward in waves of infantry, each separated by about 50 yards. He was smoking, like most everyone else around him, and had his rifle slung over his shoulder. As they marched across, quote, Fritz let us have it with shrapnel, machine guns, and rifles. As we traveled along, our lads kept falling, killed and wounded. And about halfway across, the second wave catches up with the first to fill these gaps up. About a hundred yards from the German trench, our officer turned and said, up a bit on the left, then pitched forwards. That was the last order he gave, end quote. Despite the fire, by 8.30 a.m., the German support trench line just south of Montauban, known as Dublin Trench, was seized and contact on the right was made with the poilus of the Iron Corps. The previous week's bombardment had done its job by sweeping most of the resistance away. Glatz Redoubt, part of Dublin Trench, was taken by Andrew's 19th Manchester Pals in a savage fight that saw few or no prisoners taken. We hadn't exactly been told no prisoners, but we were given to understand that that was what was wanted, Andrews explained. In a support role assigned to bomb out any remaining dugouts with grenades, he wrote of shooting down three surrendering Germans with another Tommy as the men rushed toward them. Andrews did let another man go, but when the Germans retreated from Glatz Redoubt toward Montauban, he and other Manchesters opened rapid fire at them. German resistance stiffened at Montauban itself. Now the 30th Division's 90th Brigade moved up, and at 8.30 these men began the assault on the village. Machine gun fire held up the pals of the 90th Brigade, one of whom was Albert Andrews' brother, and caused considerable losses. But by 10, fighting dwindled as Germans could be seen running back towards the village of Bazantin-les-Grandes to the north. Montauban was found to be deserted, and British troops moved the, into the ruins of what in pre-war days had been a village of some 274 houses. Now, Andrews noted, Montauban had gone down like a box of bricks. The village lay in utter ruins. In the early afternoon, the Briquetterie, a brick factory southeast of Montauban, was surrounded and attacked by the 20th Manchesters. It was captured in five minutes of fighting. Within a short time, guns of the Royal Field Artillery parked in the open ground to the south of the ruined factory and started putting shells into Trone and Benafay woods to the north. 30th Division had taken all of its objectives on this first day of the big push. They had even captured three artillery pieces as the German owners beat feet out of the area. Casualties had been considerable, 
about 3,000, reaching even into the higher ranks as both commanders of the 16th and 17th Manchester Pals had been killed in combat. As the remaining Tommies consolidated their positions around Montauban and the Briquetterie, the Germans, now recovering a bit, expressed their displeasure at the day's developments by heavily shelling the new British positions. To the left of the 30th Division, the 18th Division was tasked with seizing the ground between Montauban to their northeast and Mamet's village to their northwest. The artillery of the 18th Division had done a commendable job at pounding away the German lines. They'd had lessons from the French nearby. And Commanding General Max had a solid battle plan. But luck wasn't with them. Things here start to get tough as we follow the events of July 1st, 1916 on the Somme. The problem was that here and there, a machine gun team survived in its concrete pillbox. Here and there, a group of 10, 20, or even 30 half-mad but muscle-memory-functional German soldiers survived. Already, German troops in 18th Division sector were pouring machine gun fire into the exposed flank of the 30th Division. Within minutes, the 18th Liverpool Pals of the 30th Division found themselves under withering enfilade fire and 50% casualties. Men dropped, pitched forward, and cried out horribly as bullets from Fritz's supporting trenches punched into their bodies. At 7.27, two underground mines were blown in 18th Division sector, a 500-pound one at the division's left boundary and a 5,000-pound doozy dug under a German frontline salient called Casino Point. Casino Point was blown off the face of the earth. To the east of that rising cloud of smoke, fire, and dust, the Tommies of 55th Brigade rose promptly at 7.30. On the brigade's extreme right, the 8th East Surrey Battalion kicked footballs across no man's land. The soccer balls had been provided by Captain W.P. Neville, no doubt as a measure to help alleviate even just a sliver of the stress of battle. It is a scene that will live forever, made more poignant by the fact that within a few minutes, Captain Neville and many of his men were scythed down by machine gun fire as they crossed no man's land. 18th Division kept pushing, even as German machine gun teams crouching in old craters brutally cut down the men of the 7th East Kent Battalion. On the division's left, the men of the 7th Bedfordshires, the 10th Essex, and the 11th Royal Fusiliers actioned and maneuvered on the Pommier Redoubt in Montauban Alley. The redoubt fell in hand-to-hand -hand fighting after Lewis machine gun teams outflanked the defending Germans by pouring fire on them from the side. By reaching Montauban Alley and capturing Pommier Redoubt, 18th Division was having success despite unexpectedly heavy casualties totaling around 3,100 men killed, wounded, missing. Its success also triggered the beginning of the collapse of German defense in that sector of the Somme, as German units or their survivors began to fall apart and fall back under the pressure of oncoming British troops. To the left of the 18th Division lay the 7th Division, a part of General Horn's 15th Corps and positioned in part of the line between Mametz and Fricourt. The German front line at Mametz formed the Mametz-Fricourt salient, and Fricourt was the scene of heavy fighting in 1914, as we saw in Episode 1, and further heavy mine and infantry warfare throughout 1915. Mametz itself was known to be heavily fortified. 7th Division was ordered to assault between Fricourt and Mametz and capture Mametz village itself. 
After Mamets was taken, they were to continue north to Mamets Wood. North of Fricourt, the 21st Division was to punch through the German lines there. And together with the 7th Division, they would pinch out the Fricourt salient. No full corps direct assault was planned. Everyone knew that just like Mametz, Fricourt was a village turned fortress as well. Fricourt was known to be so heavily fortified that the BEF had put massive 9.2 inch guns working the village over. The only problem with this was that a high proportion of the shells sent over had their fuses fall out as they rained in, thus landing as duds. At 7.26 a.m. in the crater fields east of Fricourt, where the front line turned from its east-west axis to a generally northern one, clay kickers of the 178th Tunneling Company set off two of three mines under the Tambor salient. The three mines were packed with 9,000, 15,000, and 25,000 pounds of explosives, respectively. The resulting explosion sent an earth-shattering mountain of earth into the air. The Tambor position was wiped off the map. In 7th Division sector, on its right where it met the 18th, the men of the 91st Brigade attacked. Because the 15th Corps' guns had fired off way more ammunition than they should have during the week-long bombardment, the German defenses were devastated and in disarray. The rushing British troops were still hit by machine guns from Mametz and German trenches in Danzig Alley to the east. But while men fell by the dozen, the advance continued. In the initial confusion, the defending Germans put up a haphazard and dispirited fight. By 8 a.m., Tommies of the South Stafford Shears and 22nd Manchester Pals entered the southernmost buildings of Mametz. But after this, the attack stalled. The Germans in the northern part of Mametz, composed of Infantry Regiment 109, rallied and began pouring heavy machine gun fire across no man's land as supporting battalions attempted to cross. The 91st Brigade's left, the 20th Brigade had walked into crisscrossing streams of fire. German machine guns from Fricourt Wood rained down a terrible horizontal swathe of bullets. The 20th Brigade's extreme right, the men of the 2nd Gordon Highlanders were mown down from a German machine gun position in Mamet's cemetery called the Shrine. The German team in the Shrine, being on the upper end of a gentle slope, had a solid view of the exposed Tommies as they left their trenches. They also had an excellent field of fire on the 9th Devonshires, to the Highlanders' left. And here is a real tragedy. The men of the 9th Battalion of the Devonshire Regiment had to begin the assault from their support trenches. Here is where we begin to get into the Battle of the Somme that is a part of our popular memory. As the Devonshires left their support trenches, the Germans at the Shrine traversed their machine guns back and forth across their ranks. Before the attack, one of the Devonshire's officers, a Captain Duncan Martin, had studied the plan of his battalion's upcoming attack and told his commanders that unless that very machine gun at the shrine were taken out, the Devonshire's would suffer terribly. He predicted that his unit wouldn't make it through the first few minutes of the assault. His suggestions were ignored. That morning, Captain Martin was proven right. As he led his troops around Mansell Copse, a small patch of trees in no man's land, he was cut down and killed. Within minutes, both the Gordon Highlanders and the 9th Devonshires had both taken hundreds of casualties, effectively decimating these battalions. The Devonshires pushed on and towards cover in the German frontline trench, 
and the Gordons made it to the German reserve trench before more machine guns from Mamet's village cut deeper swathes into them. The 8th Devonshires were called up to support their brothers in the 9th, and among them was Lieutenant Noel Hodgson, whose poem Before Action had just been published in Britain on June 29th. The 8th Devonshires went over the top from the supporting trenches, running over the contorted and writhing bodies of their fallen and wounded comrades. The gun at the shrine opened up on them as well, wiping them out in minutes. Lieutenant Hodgson was among those killed. Today, Captain Martin, Lieutenant Hodgson, and the men of the Devonshire Regiment are buried at Devonshire Cemetery in Mansell Copse, in what was their frontline trench. What is perhaps the most haunting unit memorial I've heard is inscribed there. The Devonshires held this trench. The Devonshires hold it still. Gives me goosebumps every single time. 20th Brigade's attack stalled as the German 109th Infantry put out murderous fire from Mametz. From Fricor, Germans of the 111th Infantry Regiment supported them and put out their own sides of bullets towards the men of 7th Division's 22nd Brigade and the British 21st Division to the north. Belonging to the 22nd Brigade and facing trenches to the east and south, of Fricor Village, the men of the 7th Green Howards, members of the 50th Brigade, a unit that actually belonged to the 17th Division to the rear, I know it's a lot of numbers, and the 20th Manchester Pals of 22nd Brigade went over the top right at 7.30 a.m. Devastating fire hit them, and within minutes, hundreds of cocky-clad men lay bloodied and torn in the fields in the same ranks in which they'd advanced. East and north of Fricor, things got a lot tougher really fast. In the east, in the precious minutes, following the detonation of the mines under the Tambor position, German troops rushed to seize the craters. The mines had been blown to confuse the enemy and prevent him from giving enfilading fire to units to the south. The 4th Middlesex and the 8th Somerset Light Infantry of the 8th of the 63rd Brigade facing the lines just north of the smoking craters at the Tambor and situated west of Fricor advanced on the German trenches. To their right advanced the 10th West Yorkshires who belonged to the 50th Brigade. All three battalions were mown down by machine guns. The 10th West Yorkshires would earn the claim of the unit with the highest casualty rate of July 1st, 90%, with 22 officers and 688 enlisted men torn down as they ran for the German front line. The Middlesex and Somerset men were cut down by just six machine guns placed in Free Corps Village itself and the trenches in front of it. The 63rd Brigade went to ground. It was men like Rudolf Stadelbacher and Unteroffizier Otto Schuseler of the Machine Gun Company of Reserve Infantry Regiment 111 who manned those murderous guns that day. We saw the enemy assault out of all trenches, wrote a man named Schuseler. Our machine gun was in full working order. There was nothing to stop us opening fire. Schuseler acted as gunner and I was his number two. Stadelbacher handled ammunition resupply. Unteroffizier Erit from Sharpshooter Troop 131 acted as observer. So we put down a hail of fire on the attacking enemy. Two companies of British who attempted to assault from the area of Freecaw Station were quickly caught by our machine gun and suffered dreadful casualties. Altogether, we fired 22,000 rounds during the day. To the north, four battalions belonging to the 64th Brigade overwhelmed the German trenches and pushed 
into German-held territory until the sunken lane area that was their objective. There they had to stop as concentrated machine gun fire began to chew up their ranks. And because to their south, 63rd Brigade's attack appeared to have collapsed. And to the north, the 101st Brigade's attack at La Boisselle looked even worse. Both the 7th and 21st Divisions now paused to hit resisting German positions with more artillery. The guns of the British 4th Army roared again as shells began to hammer in on whatever German positions were known to the attacking troops. Smoke and dust obscured parts of the brilliant summer battlefield, and Fricourt's dozens of ruined buildings were said to have a pinkish glow to them as the artillery raged against the village. Early in the afternoon, after the bombardment lifted, troops of the 7th Division assaulted and seized the eastern part of Danzig Alley between Mametz and Fricourt. Other Tommies advanced and entered the southern part of Mametz itself, bringing needed to support to others already hunkered down there since morning. In the evening, the 2nd Queens and its battalion headquarters pushed into Mametz and established themselves there. A new attack was launched, and Mametz was cleared all the way to Bunny Alley, just out of the village to the north. 600 Germans were taken prisoners once the dugouts and cellars remaining intact in the village were mopped up and cleared. Of the defending German Infantry Regiment 109, only 32 men made their way back to their own lines. 2,100 other members of the regiment lay scattered around Mametz. With Mametz seized, 7th Division was supposed to keep pushing north to Mametz Wood. But with an unexpected 3,400 casualties for just successfully taking one ruined village and its environs, the tired Tommies of the immortal 7th settled in to consolidate and await the inevitable counterattacks. At Fricourt, the bombardment lifted there too in the early afternoon, and the attack was renewed. But the men of the German 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment had rode out the 2nd Barrage well, and they quickly emerged again to put up a brutal fight. Men of the 7th Battalion, Green Howards, attacked Fricourt, from 50th Brigade sector directly to the west, with the 7th East Yorkshire Battalion in support. The Germans brought down their own barrage on them, instituting those defensive fire zones they'd learned to use. With the Green Howards and the East Yorkshire men caught by the artillery, German machine gunners opened up on them. The Green Howards fell by entire ranks. Barely 50 yards out of their trenches, and in just three minutes, 351 men went down. The East Yorkshires took a similar beating, losing 155 men just yards out of their own trenches. This attack, almost needless to say, was stopped cold. With Mamets taken and half the 21st Division squeezing in on Fricourt from the north, the surviving front Kempfer of the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment made a tactical withdrawal late on the night of July 1st towards Contomaison to the north. Small parties remained in the village, however, and as British patrols probed into Fricourt, Gerald Gladden wrote in When the Barrage Lifts that they were swept by machine gun fire along the streets. They made the Allies fight every foot of the way. As the evening turned to night on July 1st, however, Fricourt remained occupied by the enemy. It was being thoroughly squeezed by the 21st and 7th Divisions, but it remained a defiant thorn in the British 15th Corps' front. Combined with the losses of the borrowed 50th Brigade, 21st Division had suffered 5,500 men killed, wounded, or missing. The men were exhausted. It had been a hell of a day, 
this first one of the big push. Southern sector of the Somme front, though, had seen some strong successes. In the French 6th Army zone, the 2nd German Army was in trouble. General von Belov and his staff knew it, and they were scrambling to plug the hemorrhaging holes in their front there. The Poilus, many smoking captured German cigars or munching on good German chocolate as they sat in German trenches and dugouts, were very pleased with their day. In the British 4th Army's 13th and 15th Corps sectors, there had been some solid wins, as Montauban and Mametz had been wrenched from the enemy's grasp, and heavy losses had been inflicted on him as well. Fricourt lay stubborn and smoldering, and would have to be assaulted again, but small gains had been made there as well. We'll stop at Fricourt for this episode, and with the next, we'll pick it up from there and take the 4th Army's 1st of July 1916 attacks all the way up to Gumcor. For those of you who already know the rest of the story, and for those of you new to it, it's going to get worse from here. A lot worse. So, I'll be feverishly starting on that episode right after this. Again, if you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider reviewing it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes. That helps get more and more folks involved. Also, if you would like to help support the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is firstworldwarpodcast.com and I would like to thank everyone who has already contributed. All right. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.